Hi, uh, this is Larry Bernstein. Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 11. On today's call, we're going to hear for, about education disruption from Brian Kaplan and COVID spread in New York City jails from Patsy Yang. We're going to discuss various complexities of tracing, clusters, networks, and quarantining from Lauren Myers, Alex Pentland, Shafi Goldwasser, and Kim Whedon. Joe Farrell will discuss business liability risk and the reopening of businesses. Diana Mutz will discuss pandemic politics and public opinion towards trade and globalization. Barry Schwartz will detail the trade-off between security and wealth. Real estate is beginning a down cycle. Dean Adler will discuss how to invest in real estate when there's recession, and he will focus on retail. Michael Bordo will chat about the Fed's actions in historical context. I line up each week's speakers more than a week in advance. I didn't know that there would be riots in the major cities this week, so I didn't get a special speaker. So I'm inviting back Chris Arnotti for a guest appearance. I think it was in week one when Chris said that if you shelter in place, the underclass, you're creating a power keg, and any spark will set it off. He said we should expect violence and riots in two months. My friend Alan Schaffman reminded me that I included in the questionnaire uh, during week one, week two, and week three, when uh, and if we should expect riots, 92% of my audience said no, there would be no social unrest. I was one of the 8% that said there would be. Well, it's been 10 weeks, and we will hear again from Chris Arnotti on what happens next. The Chatham House rules apply for this call. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn more without putting the speaker at risk. The format of the call will be the same as the previous 10 weeks. Each speaker will be given only six minutes. At the five-minute point, I may throw in a question or two, and then we're off to the next speaker. I think the format is both fun and incredibly informative. After all the speakers have spoken, there will be a general question and answer period. This call is being recorded. Brian Kaplan, if you're on the web link, please call into the special number provided. In the meantime, I'm going to call on Patsy Yang. She is Senior Vice President for Correctional Health Services, a division that provides medical, mental health, and dental health services to individuals in the New York City jail system. Patsy, please go ahead. Great. Thank you. Um, thanks for this. Uh, yeah, we're part of New York City Health and Hospitals, which is the largest municipal healthcare system in the, in the nation. Um, on March 1st, which is the day that uh, the first case of COVID was confirmed in New York City, um, in the New York City jail system, which is 11 facilities in, in, in the citywide boroughs, four boroughs. We had almost 6,000 people, many of whom were, are older with serious underlying medical conditions in congregate living spaces in old jail facilities. Um, we were part of the larger city that was facing a viral tsunami um, that saw about 20,000 deaths in just those two months of March and April. The three cornerstones in our approach to limit the damage of, of the pandemic in the jails was, was decarceration, containment and maintenance. Uh, the, first, the first approach to the decarceration was really the idea there was to depopulate the jails. Um, it was to protect our most vulnerable to a serious course of disease should they contract the virus. And the second aim of that was to really op provide more opportunity for physical distancing for those who remained in our custody. The, uh, the pandemic really gave strength and purpose and opportunity to our longstanding advocacy work for compassionate release of patients from jail. Um, and our criteria really age and certain clinical conditions that, that leave people more vulnerable. Um, our work depended on relationships with defense attorneys, district attorneys, courts, state correction and state mental health agencies, 
And in those two months, we got more than uh, 2,000 people released, including more than half of our patients who are 50 years of age or older. Uh, to support sort of the safe reentry and release into the city, um, we enhanced our discharge services, screened every single patient whom the Department of Correction escorted to us prior to their release from jail. And we assisted individuals in securing accommodations in hotels um, where they needed to self-isolate if they, if they needed to, um, but did not have accommodations to do so. Our second approach was containment, and that's really itself two-pronged. And it involves housing Patsy, and... Hang on one yeah. second, Patsy. Um, I apologize. Um, a number of people have started texting me that there's a trouble with the web link. Mm. Um, give me one second to see if I can sure. figure out what the problem is. I tell you what, Patsy, why don't you go ahead and I'll see if other people are uh, having problems. Okay, sure. Go ahead. Sure. So um, apartment decarceration was containment. And um, one of the things was housing. Again, in jails with congregate living spaces, we created a whole new designation of housing for patients on the COVID spectrum, depending on each individual's clinical need and status. So we ended up separately housing our most vulnerable asymptomatic patients separately from asymptomatic patients who had known exposures to COVID, separately from patients who had symptoms of the disease and whose test results were still pending, and separately from patients who, who we knew were confirmed COVID cases. Um, we maximized our use of cell housing, and we, we sort of de-densified our dorm housing spaces to about 50% of occupancy. Um, our housing plan involved almost 200 housing units and thousands of beds, um, and at the peak of this last wave of the pandemic, um, almost 300 isolation beds and 3,000 quarantine beds were occupied by people who were in detention. The second strategy um, in, in containment was testing. And as soon as testing was available, which was not in the beginning of March 1st, um, we began antigen testing at a, at a rate that's about four times more aggressive than what was happening in the rest of New York City. Um, we did that because we were cognizant of the higher path level of pathology among our patients so we could better clinically manage them and separately to help inform those housing decisions that I just described. Um, so we did antigen testing among people who were symptomatic, people who were asymptomatic but highly vulnerable, and universally among all people who entered as new admissions into the jail system. And we began, began antibody testing last May, I mean, this, late, late in this past May. Um, the, the third sort of approach was maintenance of healthcare to better set our patients up to fight the virus. You know, despite mandates to minimize person-to-person -person contact, you know, between patients and between patients and staff in waiting areas and in clinics and in transit to and from their housing areas, we still managed to maintain access to our medical, our nursing, our mental health services, our ongoing substance use treatment, medications, emergency and urgent care 24-7. Um, uh, built in COVID specific screening at every contact point within the criminal justice process that's at pre arraignment, admission to the jails, every clinical encounter during detention, and on discharge from the jails. Um, we also created new workflows, expanding our telehealth video connections, um, and established new telephonic connections for patients from any of their housing units directly to contact the health service, whether it was a physical health issue or a mental health anxiety about what COVID meant. One second. Yes. We're still having some technical problems. I've literally received 150 text messages. Um, Patsy, you know what I, what I think I'm going to do is take you out of your usual speech and maybe do some question and answer until the technical solutions have been resolved. Um, okay. Patsy, um, tell me what 
what are you doing about um, have the number of arrests have you purposely de decreased the number of arrests because of the the health problems and are you letting I guess catching and releasing to a much greater degree because of that? Um, no, I mean this because the city's actually been in lockdown um, because of COVID. There's been much more, much less street activity, um, much fewer arrests. The courthouses are closed, um, and they they were closed for a time, for a time, and then um, just doing virtually. So the, the the situation where we are right now is that um, you know there's virtually no new cases within within the population who have been in detention with us for these last few months, um, which is why we're focusing on new admissions as potential vectors. We're quarantining them and universally testing them. But, you know, the census has begun to creep back up um, as restrictions ease, uh, particularly which officially begins next week in the city. We are certainly preparing for more arrests, uh, more community transmission um, and, and entry into the jails, both from our staff and new admissions into the jails. Um, you know, this is, would you just have the practices at New York City jails, have they um, are they different? Than at let's say in Chicago or any other major MSAs. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, we have been. You know, um, we we have been, and before COVID, we were in touch, but not with such frequency. Now it's weekly with Chicago and Austin and Dallas and San Francisco and LA, all the all the large urban um, jail health folks. Um, you know what what we all see, um, and it's and it's not specific to the jails. It's just concentrated in, in congregate settings like jails is, uh, you know, that this is a totally a shape-shifting virus. I mean, we started with list of, this list of symptoms continues to change. Back in January, it was travel from Wuhan, and now it's, you know, anosmia, you know, loss of smell and taste, and now MSIC. The question of, you know, checking for symptoms is even up in the air because we know that asymptomatic patients can carry and transmit the virus. You know, testing itself, which which we we leapt upon and everybody leaps upon as the answer, you know, antigen testing, it just gives you one, a picture of a point in time. Um, antibody testing doesn't tell you anything really solid about conferring immunity or not. Um, so, you know, our understanding of this disease and this virus continues to evolve. We continue to confer with, with our colleagues. Um, we're all pretty much in line and, and with great respect to, to this virus. Um, Certainly, it sheds light on disparities um, within and between communities and cities and nations globally. Um, it, it, the, the, the impact of the, of the virus shines light on those underlying disparities, which leads to that whole question of unrest that, that we started talking about earlier. I think, you know, as, as, as uh, cities and, and as a nation and as a planet, I think we, it gives it pushes the imperative to to reevaluate how we invest um, and change what has been a status quo. Um, on the technical matter, I'm getting a um, a message from the operator. They asked um, if callers can call um, a specific number. I'm going to send on the evite what that other number is um, mm -hmm. and the code number as a backup in case the audio continues to dysfunction. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to, while I do that work, I'm going to ask uh, Patsy another question. Um, we've heard rumors that um, that individuals are being released from jails and prisons um, if they, to prevent, or they may already be have COVID, 
and they're being thrown into the general population pool. Um, how problematic is that? And from a public health perspective, do we do damage to the general population more than we do to the jail population by releasing COVID patients who, uh, who maybe I call it troublemakers? Yeah, I, you know, I think I think that's a bit of a yeah. a, a misperception about that. You know, there is the concern about the public health uh, imperative to to release people from congregate settings that have questionable sanitation um, and and the inability to socially distance um, from a virus that is highly transmissible um, versus creating one by releasing folks. Um, out into the community, which is why, which is why we've we stressed the point that we are testing more aggressively. Which, of course, the more you test, the more, the more um, you find. Um, we see no no indication that there's a greater level of of transmission or or greater transmission that's going on in the jails. It's that we are testing more. Um, we do do screening uh, for people who are being released. Um, we screen all our staff and the correction staff before they come in. The the rate of of, of transmission and, and disease among the staff, um, certainly among the correction staff, has been comparable. Um, these, everybody lives in the same communities. I don't know if I've answered your question. Uh, perfect. I tell you what, why don't we, um, Lauren, why don't you start us off uh, on another topic and then we'll see if the technical uh, difficulties get better or worse. Um, Lauren is a professor of integrative biology at the University of Texas at Austin. Go ahead, Lauren. Do you want me to give my six minutes, or do you want to wait to the to things clear up? Um, I just sent a evite out with a phone number to call. Um, I think I've just, just a matter of practice. I think I've received literally a hundred contacts so far in the last five minutes, saying that it's spotty. Some is on, some is off. I don't un understand the nature of the technical problem. Uh, if it's the web link, um, but I'm still getting emails from people that there is a problem. Um, so I don't know. I think I'd rather hold off till people can hear, because I'm getting some text saying that as well, people who are listening and who can't hear it at all. Um, all right, well, maybe what we can do then is maybe have a, a conversation that isn't directly linked to your six minutes. Um, I'll ask you some right, questions. Is it possible because I mean, I forwarded the link to some people who may not be on your evite. Is it possible to let people know the, the call-in number? Um, I just e sent an evite out. Um, I, I didn't receive that. Okay. Um, Nor did I. All right, so I will... Um, okay. Um, it looks like the number you sent us is the same that you sent before, right? They were on. Yeah, that, 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 that phone right. number is only for the. Um, the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, um, what I sent you was different than what goes to everybody else. So um, I'm going to email the speakers, the webcast call, and then the special number. I just received. Sorry, I'm getting a little overwhelmed to be honest with you. Well, I 
um, while I do that, maybe I can ask, ask some questions because some people are, are, are successful in logging on and can hear. Um, okay. Can you can you give me like your Lauren your estimate of R naught for this um, virus? In other words, do you so, see it as? Go ahead. Yeah, well, I can talk about. I mean, so I don't know if your audience all knows what R naught is, but you know the reproduction number of the virus is, in short, the expected number of secondary cases that each infected person will cause. How many people you'll infect if you become infected? So, um, so R naught is uh, the naught stands for a subscript zero, which is sort of what is the what is the transmission rate or the reproduction rate of the virus in its native state when there's no interventions and when there you know really nobody's been infected yet. So if we if you want to talk about R naught, you're really talking about what was how was it spreading before we started to intervene. And our estimates for that range from two all the way up to ten, depending on where it was estimated, what method was being used, what data was being used. But I mean the the upshot is that before if this thing is just sort of left to its own devices, the reproduction number is probably well above two. Um, but then what we're tracking on kind of more of a real-time basis is something we call just the reproduction number or the effective reproduction number, R sub T, R sub E. And that's sort of like what, you know, how fast is it actually spreading under today's conditions, and which will vary from city to city, uh, depending on what kinds of interventions are, have been enacted. And also depending on how far, how mature the epidemic is, the more people have already been infected, the more immunity has been built up in the population, the slower the virus will spread. And so that really varies. So, we, for example, we are we're trying to estimate the reproduction number on almost a daily basis in Austin, Texas, where I live, working with local data. And um, our own local estimates were that the reproduction number was probably well above three in early March before we closed schools and went into a stay-home order. And then in kind of the the depths of stay-home, when people really were sitting still and not going out, the reproduction number dropped safely below one. So, and, and the reproduction number of one is sort of that threshold for where you, uh, if it's below one, you would expect um, the outbreak to sort of fizzle out on its own. If it's above one, you know you can have exponential growth. And now, sort of week to week, um, things are, uh, oh, here I just got this, um, uh, things are uh, starting to rebound. And right now, the, the estimated, like today, the estimated reproduction number is somewhere right about one. It could be a little below, a little above, but we're just sort of at this precarious point where we could start to kind of move back into a phase where well, we would expect a, a, a imminent wave of the pandemic. So things I don't understand, um, why was the transmission rate so low on those cruise ships and on that U.S. aircraft carrier where there was a COVID? Why, the, the, take that aircraft, craft, aircraft carrier in particular, it is highly dense. Um, this living space is like mind-boggling. It's like 40x of a normal U.S. American home. Why didn't we see massive spread on the aircraft carrier? So I have not studied that data closely, but my understanding is that those, um, those, uh, the folks on the aircraft carrier were only on the aircraft carrier for, I mean, less than two weeks. And even though it's very dense, it is a huge, it was huge population, right? Thousands of soldiers on that carrier, and thousands of employees. And so, um, it just, even if it you know, spread almost like wildfire, it would just actually literally take several generations of transmission to get, you know, completely saturate that population. So I think given, given the amount of time that they were all sort of residing on the ship, probably with some efforts at least to uh, quarantine, locally quarantine, even if there were a lot of people in one, in one bunk, 
um, it, it doesn't, the, the number of cases over that short period of time isn't necessarily inconsistent with what we've estimated elsewhere for the, the transmission rate for the virus. Okay. Do you and want me to start my, my spiel or? My sure, do it. Or? Do it. Okay. I, um, okay. I've made another technical problem. I, I typed that code in improperly. Oh, oh, what is it? Yeah, someone just told me the passcode's not right. Yeah, my bad <laughs> can again. I just read, can I, should I just read it out or? Uh, sure. If there's trouble on the line, the number is 973-528-0009, and the code is 591-547. That's 591-547, and then the asterisk. I'm going to send All another right. evite out. Why don't you go ahead and start, and I'll continue to send notes to everybody. Okay. I okay. apologize. No problem. All right. You can all hear me. Um, all right. Well, greetings from Austin. So I've been modeling pandemics for decades during threats like SARS, the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, the West African Ebola epidemic, Zika, and now COVID. We modelers seek answers to three basic questions. Where and how is the virus spreading today? What should we expect tomorrow and in the future? And how should we use costly or limited resources to slow spread and save lives? In other words, we model one, to gain situational awareness, two, to forecast, and three, to support decision-making. So I'm gonna start with the second objective, forecasting. We've built an online COVID death forecasting model that is now part of the CDC's ensemble. It was the first model to make forecasts for individual cities and to use cell phone geolocation data as an indicator of how much people are actually social distancing down to the census track. Forecasting gets a ton of attention from policymakers, the press, the public, but it is fraught with difficulties. Without a crystal ball telling us how people and policymakers are going to behave or when new drugs and vaccines are going to come online, it's nearly impossible to project beyond a month. It's different from weather forecasting in two key ways. First, weather forecasting is a far more mature and highly resourced endeavor. It rests on centuries of R&D, several orders of magnitude, more daily data, and 1,000-fold larger annual budget in the U.S. Relatively speaking, pandemic forecasting is brand new and it's done on a shoestring. Second, our forecasts are often made to be broken. When they look bleak, we want them to change behavior, which then changes the forecast. When meteorologists forecast a hurricane, we know that there is nothing to do but get out of the way. If we forecast an unmanageable surge in COVID hospitalizations, we hope that steps will be taken to alter that fate. For these and many other reasons, people have a difficult time believing the forecast and behaving commensurately with the projected risk. Now back to the first pursuit, modeling to get a basic handle on the threat, particularly in the early days of emergence. Recall early January, the news out of China was unreliable and changing daily. Within 24 hours of COVID breaking the news, my team started to triangulate, scavenging for any data on the virus and the community in which it was spreading and building new models that captured not only the spread of the virus, but also, and really importantly, the fuzzy lens through which we were seeing the situation. This is not just correcting for biases. This is thinking concretely about what we could and could not see happening in Wuhan at the time. In our first of several detective-like studies, we used the timing and location of the first 19 cases reported outside of China, in Bangkok and Seattle, elsewhere, combined with global air travel data and the cell phone mobility data from millions of people in China to essentially back out the, the exponential growth rate of the epidemic in Wuhan. We projected that by the time of the January 23rd lockdown, 
well over 10,000 people had been infected, which was far more than the 425 that were reported by China. So I'm gonna pivot finally to the third and arguably the most valuable of our modeling efforts, where a lot of the action is today. And that's in designing robust mitigation strategies when weighing the costs and the benefits of myriad options is beyond the capacity of even the brightest minds. Sometimes this is about getting into the weeds. We've helped the federal government figure out when and where to release strategic national stockpile drugs to figure, help them figure out how many ventilators to pre-position in hospitals versus central stockpiles for future threats. But today, we are up in the trees. We're using models to articulate at the very highest level where we are and where we need to go in the months ahead. In a world of vague nods to 14-day declines and politicized wearing of face masks, policymakers urgently need clear guidance on what data to track and when to take action. So we are working with decision makers like the CDC and like Mayor Adler of Austin, who spoke on this call a couple weeks back, to clarify the goals of future policies. What do we hope to achieve? And the constraints of future policies, what will the law abide and what will the public abide, as well as which data to track to ensure we are on target. So here's where we are in Austin. We've designed a strategy to comply with the Texas governor's relaxation orders and to satisfy two goals. Goal number one, prevent surges in COVID hospitalizations that overwhelm our capacity and lead to many more severe complications and deaths in those who do not re receive timely or safe care. And goal number two, minimize the duration of economically restrictive policies. <coughs> After months of almost daily discussions between city leaders, all regional healthcare systems and the modelers, we came up with a robust policy that is easy to state and it is practical to implement. And here it is, okay, what we track on a daily basis is new COVID-19 hospital admissions. We're not tracking total hospitalizations, we're not tracking cases, not tracking deaths. This is our most reliable indicator of an impending surge in hospitalizations. Then when the numbers exceed predetermined thresholds, we trigger changes in policy. Austin now has a five colored alert system ranging from full blown stay home, the red, to very relaxed, green, it has clear triggers for toggling between the different colors that my team optimized so that Austin, Austin can proactively tap on the brakes to keep the surge manageable and to avert prolonged stay home orders going forward. Both online and in the press, the county judge, the mayor, other leaders have begun to socialize the idea that when Austin hits 20 new admissions per day, we're gonna have to rein things in. This framework can be tailored to any city to reduce the need for strict orders while ensuring the integrity of the health system, the safety of the health workforce, and public confidence. But even if it's not, here's the takeaway. We need clarity on what to track and when to act. In New York and elsewhere, even after drastic actions were taken, hospitalizations and deaths continued to climb for weeks and even months before finally reaching their peak. So to navigate the road ahead, we should do the following. One, look at hospital admissions as a reliable indicator of changing risk. Two, enact staged measures to slow transmission before reaching the point of no return. And three, recognize that decisive action will be needed long before we approach local healthcare capacity. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Um, our next speaker is Alex Pentland. He is a professor at MIT specializing uh, in he runs the Connection Science and MIT-wide initiative that helps create and direct the MIT Media Lab and the Media Lab Asia in India. Please go ahead, Alex. Thank you. 
Um, so my group looks at human behavior and outcomes, and we do some things that are rather like Professor Myers, the previous speaker, where we're using individual level, day-by-day -day behavior data from mobile phones, uh, working with leading epidemiologists uh, to figure out what's going to go happen. What we see is that it's quite likely that there'll be a, other waves of COVID-19, and this will continue for a long time since vaccines are not perfect protection. Our work suggests that uh, contact tracing will be effective only if we can catch and quarantine something on the order of 30% of the new cases. It's very difficult to make contact tracing work in the U.S. because of privacy and the need for universal adoption. And more importantly, contact tracing is only effective if coupled with serious quarantine, either locking people away uh, or you know, locking their entire family up uh, for up to two weeks. So confining pre-symptomatic people or confining their entire families for two weeks is hard to imagine, working very well in the U.S. or the EU. So what can you do? Well, another idea is, is you can play whack-a-mole. Uh, outbreaks are spatially localized, so if you can identify an outbreak early enough, you can focus medical services on it, as the previous speaker was talking about and you can even limit travel. Unfortunately, accomplishing outbreak detection by testing requires testing huge numbers of people constantly, which is probably unrealistic. There is another way. Uh, what we have shown is that community aggregate mobility behavior changes before the outbreak has really taken hold. So even earlier than admissions, community members have more visits to pharmacies, to doctors, fewer trips to work, and so forth, even before the outbreak has really taken hold. And what this allows us to do is to predict outbreaks of COVID-19 one and even two weeks in advance. This outbreak prediction allows medical authorities then to focus their testing and preventative measures on a small number of locations, so putting greater force on those locations, and consequently to better prevent a widespread outbreak. Uh, we're already doing this in Israel through our spinoff, Endor.com. There we're using classified data sources. In the U.S., we've shown that within the state of Massachusetts, you can use commercial anonymous uh, store foot traffic to accomplish much the same type of prediction. Uh, the paper describing this work is online, and Larry sent around a pointer to it in his email. Other papers in that same sort of sense uh, in that directory uh, describe the other work that we're doing. So our suggestion is, is that U.S. state governments might want to try the Israeli approach of predicting neighborhoods likely to have outbreaks in order to better focus medical resources and prevent an uncontrolled spread of infection. It's worth noticing, noticing that the CDC has long done this sort of monitoring of drugstores and things like this for other diseases um, and what we're beginning to show is now you can do the same type of thing with COVID. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Alex. Um, our next speaker is Jeffy Goldwasser. Uh, she holds faculty positions in the Departments of Computer Science in MIT as well as the Weizmann Institute. She is the co-founder of Dualify Technologies, a startup specializing in privacy-enhancing technologies for machine learning applications. She received the Turing Award in 2012. Thanks, Jeffy. Go ahead. Thanks. Actually, I'm in Berkeley now. I'm uh, the director of uh, <clears throat> science history at Berkeley. But in any case, so to our topic, um, 
so as the previous speaker said, as governments, universities, companies all are going to move out of lockdown, it's key to keep the public health, inform, uh, public health agencies informed of the rate of infection uh, in order to be able to know how to act immediately and effectively to contain new cases. So um, since there's yet no precise analytical model that can do predictions reliably, uh, interestingly, I'm on a lot of these panels, and um, last week I was on a panel where there were six statisticians and each had a different model. A, the fact is that we don't have a precise model of how infection, in the case of COVID-19, spreads. So what we can rely on really is data. The best thing we can do is to have as much data as possible. And luckily, we live in a time where there's a lot of availability uh, of machine learning algorithms and data analysis tools that if we have the data, we can actually make very good predictions. But the question is, where is this data? So part of the data is what everybody knows, where they are, who they're next to, uh, whether they have symptoms, whether they've been tested. And this data exists across many states and many countries. Um, now, if all the data was available, we would be able to figure out trends, we would be able to figure out hotspots, we would be able to tell very quickly whether we um, were close to someone and therefore reduced the amount of time before between getting infected and finding out that you were infected. And uh, the thing is that uh, there's the privacy issue, which, uh, which uh, I know you've talked about in the series. And uh, that's, that brings us to my expertise. So my expertise is really cryptography, is how do you maintain privacy and still get utility out of data? And you've heard about contact tracing. And contact tracing, the way that are, is being discussed in the States, at least, is the distributed solution, which means, let's say, you put an app on your phone, and as uh, Sandy said, let's say there's more than 30% that have done it of the population, then you'll be able to find out whether you are close to someone who got tested as positive. But that's not enough. Because it's not enough, first of all, because I, I doubt we'll get 30%. And second of all, then you know whether you are close to someone, but whether you're actually going to do something about it and whether that helps the health authorities is very unclear, especially if they don't have the reporting. So what we really need is statistical information on a large scale. So we, we need to know where infections happen, what are the symptoms, maybe even what the time of day that you are more likely to get infected and so forth. So we need to know a lot more information. That's in, in complete contradiction with privacy. And my point is that it isn't. So there are methods that have been developed in the field that I'm part of, at the field of cryptography. They go back to the 80s. And these are tools which enable you to collect the statistical information um, and find out the statistical signal, that is, where do people get infected? How many people should go into a workplace? What is the most effective way to do a lockdown? Is it an, an intermediate you know, 410 rule that you probably have read about in the New York Times or other rules? The idea, the tool is called homomorphic encryption, the one that I mostly toot for this. And the idea here is encryption, where you let's say encrypt a lot of information about you from your phone. I mean, you're not doing this by hand. There might be an app that would do it. But your phone is encrypting the information. So when it leaves your phone, nobody can really read it, including uh, the government, whoever it is that you are worried about, the insurance companies that later are going to charge you more if you get infected. But it can be analyzed. So in other words, you can do computations and data and find out things like locations that are dangerous or thresholds of the amount of population that got infected without finding out about individuals. And this would allow even analysis across borders. Different countries could share data sets while encrypted. So you could find out things from China or Italy and so forth without finding individual information. Um, so if everything's so good, why aren't we all using it? That's a, a great question. Um, even though these things were around in the 80s, 
um, it's only in the last few years that a lot of companies are out there that have been offering products that do this. And it's not been, of course, for COVID-19, which is a recent thing, but it's been in, in the financial industry to combat things like anti-money laundering, in uh, genetic analysis, for doing genome-wide association studies, like relating illnesses with genetic uh, sequences. But now it will be extremely useful for statistical analysis of COVID-19 spread. And uh, since I'm in Berkeley now, we are developing a platform that will be used in Berkeley, hopefully once the college uh, goes into uh, in-person mode of some sort or another. And I guess if I had to ask for any call for action uh, among people who are on this call, is that we really need regulators to accelerate the evaluation and approval of these privacy-enhancing technology, the morphic encryption, as being compliant to enable um, this information sharing while preserving privacy. I just want to say last word that Sandy mentioned Israel and how Israel is collecting information, is being effective. I think Israel, you know, has the shin bet. They're collecting information because they've always collected information. Just that now it's been allowed to connect, collect it also on the Israeli population, which are Jewish in addition to the, the, the occupied territories or Arabs in Israel. So I don't think we can compare it to the U.S. In the U.S., you need regulations to approve using these methods that preserve privacy in the short term and in the long term, and meanwhile enable the kind of analysis that's necessary. So I was told I have six minutes. I speak very quickly. Usually I have no idea how much time I took. I don't know either. My times are off because of my technical problems. Okay, um, I'm done. Uh, okay. Uh, our next speaker is Kim Whedon. She is the Janrock Zubrow Professor of the Social Sciences and Director of the Center for Study of Inequality at Cornell University. Kim, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much, Larry, and all who are on this call. Uh, so a lot of what we talked about so far is kind of based on the premise that people are coming in contact with each other, which kind of gets you right in the world of social networks. So it's not just that you live in New York City that your risk for getting the virus might be greater. It's that you're in contact with other people uh, who are in New York City that might increase your risk. Uh, so my colleague, Ben Cornwell, and I, um, Ben is also here at, at Cornell, we're really interested in providing some data that might help university administrators tackle this question about whether we should reopen for face-to-face -face instruction next fall. Um, and we are specifically interested in this network component. So we use complete transcript data from Cornell and every student at Cornell and every course at Cornell from fall of 2019. Um, just to provide some context, that's about 22,000 students, including graduate students, um, and a little over 6,000 courses. And we basically use these uh, transcript data to map the network of students who are connected to each other through their classes. Um, I'm just going to give you the main result, a few stats, and then some caveats. Because I'm an academic, I like to end with that caveats about the study. Um, so the punchline here is that the connections through these courses create what's called a small world network. Um, and a small world network is just one where there's a lot of clustering, a lot of paths, very short ties kind of connecting any two random students within this network. Um, and of course, the premise here is that a small world network creates a fertile social condition for the epidemic spread of a disease. It doesn't mean that there will be an outbreak through that network, just that that creates the social structural conditions that increase the likelihood that there will be an outbreak within that, within that population. So to give you a little bit of sense of what we found, uh, first of all, last fall, the average student at Cornell encountered up to 529 different students um, throughout a week of their courses. Um, this assumes perfect attendance. We, of course, know that, as any faculty member will tell you, that attendance is not perfect, but somewhere in the ballpark of 500 different students um, throughout the week of, of their courses. 
graduate students encountered fewer students. Uh, first and second year undergraduate students encountered a lot more just by virtue of the types of courses that they're taking. Second point, um, even students who aren't in the same class um, are connected to each other indirectly through very few steps. So if you think about any random pair of students out of these 22,000, um, if they're connected in one step, that basically means they're sharing the same class. So if Kim and Larry are in the same class, we're connected by one step. 2.4% um, of pairs of Cornell students are connected in one step, which just means there are two people who share a class together. Where it gets really interesting is in the two steps and the three steps. So if I take a course with Ben and Ben takes a course with Larry, then I'm connected to Larry only by virtue of Ben, our common connection. So Larry and I are two steps apart, or what's called two degrees of step separation. There you get to 59% of student pairs at Cornell are connected through two steps or fewer. Once you get to three steps out, it's 92% of all possible pairs of students at Cornell. Um, and by four steps, virtually every student on the Cornell campus is connected to each other. Even that third-year law student is connected to that first-year undergraduate who's taking fiber science and apparel design, which, yes, is a major here. So we sometimes talk about the six degrees of separation or the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. What we really found is that on a college campus, it's three degrees of separation. Uh, moreover, there's lots of different paths to connect any two students. So it's not just a matter of pulling out a particular connector student. Um, it's really multiple paths that are creating this, this dense network. So key point number three, um, universities can reduce the clustering of the network and increase the average degrees of separation between students um, if they try to teach moderately sized and larger courses online, what's sometimes known as a hybrid model of instruction, where you put the larger courses online and the smaller courses face-to-face. -face. So uh, we also did some simulations on these network data, uh, basically found that if you take courses of 100 students or more and you keep them online, uh, you reduce the pairs of students who are reachable in three steps or fewer to 78%. Remember, it was 92% in the unadjusted network. Um, if you bump that threshold down so that all courses of 30 students or more um, are taught online, you reduce the pairs reachable to three steps in 21 uh, to 21% of all student pairs. Just to give you a little bit of context, um, a course of 30 students or more would be about the 85th percentile of courses by size at, at Cornell. Um, we think of this as something of a Rorschach result. Um, you know, you kind of read into it, is it half empty, has, is it half full? Um, a hybrid model with some courses online does help break apart that network, but it isn't enough to entirely break apart that small world network. Um, it also means that more of, a, more of a student's classes are likely to take place online, which neither students nor faculty particularly see as a desirable outcome for, for the fall um, relative to in-person instruction. So those are the kind of the key points of the, of the um, network results. Um, I just want to close with a few caveats here. Uh, first of all, as I alluded to in talking about the average student encountering 529 other students, um, just because a student enrolls in a class with another student doesn't necessarily mean that they are sitting in the same room together, um, partly because um, of this attendance issue. Um, it also doesn't necessarily mean that they sit next to each other, right? So if you're in a 500-person auditorium and you hang out on the mezzanine or the balcony level, you're not necessarily going to run into that, that first-row student very often. Um, the second caveat here is that it is just one university in Cornell, so it's a case study. Um, I should say that other teams of researchers have found very similar network structures um, at both a teensy-weensy liberal arts college of around 2,000 students 
um, and also at the University of Michigan, which is about double Cornell's population and about 30,000 um, undergraduate students, right? So that same basic network structure, small network structure, seems to characterize universities of all different sizes. Um, and then the final caveat that I wanted to mention um, is just that you know, we are, of course, just looking at course enrollment networks. Um, and when you think about college life, particularly on a residential campus, but even on a non-residential campus, there are so many other ways that students are connected to each other, right? They're living together in dorms or in off-campus housing or Greeks or sororities. Um, they're living together or they're eating together in dining halls. They're in extracurricular activities. They're doing sports. Um, they're even kind of bumping each other into each other in between classes as they grab their coffees or <laughs> uh, use the restroom or whatever else it is that undergraduates do between between classes. Um, so the, the point here is that this network structure that we we found probably underestimates the density of ties on a college campus, um, which of course makes this challenge of reopening and fall to face-to-face -face instruction um, all the more thorny and difficult. Um, at some level, you can control what goes on in a course a lot more than you can control what happens in the residence halls, and certainly more than you can control what happens in the off-campus housing that, that the university has no legal right over um, really controlling behavior there. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to say. I'm not sure if that was six minutes or, or not, but that's what I've got. So oh, good. Good. Um, our next speaker is Diana Mutz. She is the Samuel Stouffer Professor of Political Science and Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. She is also the author of Winners and Losers, The Psychology of Attitudes Towards Foreign Trade. Diana, can you go ahead? Diana, your mute button might still be Sorry, on. yeah, I'm on a, just having trouble unmuting there. You can hear me? You're good. I can hear you fine. Okay, great. Thanks, Larry. One of the more interesting questions for political scientists these days is really debating how the aftermath of COVID is going to affect the substance of the presidential campaigns, not just whether people are able to hold rallies and conventions and such, but what kinds of issues are we going to be talking about? Uh, the Institute for the Study of Citizens and Politics at Penn surveys large numbers of people in the U.S. and follows these same people over time as part of a panel design in order to get a sense of who is changing and, and why. And although, uh, unfortunately, my most recent data points ended in March, uh, right, as all this was unfolding, so I can't really fully document COVID's effects as it's unfolded, uh, a lot of my observations today are going to come from studying this representative sample of people uh, as it has been changing since 2012. The more general point uh, that I'll mention that comes out of all this is the old truism that in politics, perceptions are really more important than reality. Uh, President Trump has already promised to focus a great deal of his campaign on China in particular, hoping to blame China for the many deaths as well as for the economic downturn that has occurred in its aftermath and, and obviously the, the underlying goal being deflecting blame that might be directed at him and that might cause him to lose votes. This has furthered the kind of debate over the extent to which COVID will result in greater animosity toward China in particular and a greater push from the mass public toward deglobalization. But the bigger question for purposes of its effect on the fall campaign is whether it causes the mass public to focus on China as an issue that they actually care about. And the short answer to this is that I doubt it, and I doubt it for several reasons that I'm going to describe. 
Uh, one reason is that Trump has been particularly inept at opinion leadership, that is, leading people in the mass public, even members of his own party, in the direction of his views. Trump has made his views on issues very well known to the public, in, in fact, in a very extreme and unmistakable way, one that makes it impossible for people to misunderstand them. And usually we think of this as uh, something that enables them to be uh, strong opinion leaders. And we may complain about how little the American public knows about Canada's issue stands, but two things almost every American voter knew about Trump in 2016 were first that he was anti-trade and anti-China, and then secondly, his immigration views were also unmistakably negative. People got it. What's interesting about this is that despite all of his success, in making his views so well-known and, and clearly understood, he wasn't successful in leading public opinion in the direction on, of his views on any of these issues, not even among Republicans. Sure, there were already big differences between the opinions of Republicans and Democrats on these issues, but those differences were already there in 2012, and they really have not changed. What Trump did that allowed him to capitalize on issues like trade in China in 2016 was not to change people's opinions, but to move people's perceptions of where the Republican Party already stood on those issues. So essentially, the, the candidate came to where the people already were rather than persuading the mass public to change their minds to come toward his views. And that was true for both trade and China. Uh, for immigration, interestingly, he actually overshot even most Republicans in his extreme stance on immigration, and this alienated people actually costing him some votes. What's particularly interesting about this is that Trump has succeeded in changing people's perceptions of what views are popular, what I call the current zeitgeist. What we find in our tracking of mass opinion is that overwhelmingly most Americans believe that the American public has become more anti-immigration, more anti-trade, and more anti-China during Trump's time in office. And Trump himself seems to believe that as well. In reality, there isn't any data out there suggesting that that has been the case. But people listen to his strong rhetoric, they watch the news, they assume that all of this is paying off in some way in terms of changing public minds. Uh, but as I said, the evidence really speaks to the contrary. Interestingly, policymakers who are especially likely to monitor media closely are even more likely to think that ordinary people uh, have moved in those directions, essentially inferring public opinion trends uh, from media coverage, even when uh, public opinion data don't back it up. So you might ask, why won't that same kind of approach that Trump used in 2016 work again in 2020? And I think there are two reasons that this is unlikely. Uh, for one, people are going to be focusing their attention domestically. When the economy takes a severe dive, as it has recently, people are not focused on international affairs. What we know about economic downturns is that they focus the public's attention inward on domestic issues rather than international ones. And this appears to be true even when it makes little rational sense to do so. This sort of um, desire to hunker down, turn inward, um, and so forth is a very predictable psychological reaction to threat. For example, in a study I did with a colleague on the Great Recession, what we found that was that although no one blamed international trade for what happened to the economy during the Great Recession, um, nonetheless, the support for international trade declined during that period of time, but it wasn't a function of people 
individual people losing jobs or fear of foreign competition for jobs and that sort of thing. Instead, um, it was a very, um, what do I want to say, not rational pattern of opinion change. In fact, among people who thought trade was good for the economy and helped the economy, and people who thought it was bad for the economy, their level of support for trade declined to exactly the same extent due to the sense of threat they felt during the Great Recession. So it isn't about people's predispositions to favor trade or oppose it. Regardless, people react in the very same way. So I guess this marks Trump as an unusually adept opinion leader in the direction of his opposite, those he campaigned on, really. Uh, logically, you might think that those who thought trade helped the economy would be even more pro-trade when the economy was in trouble, but that was not the case. Instead, everyone equally turned inward uh, toward domestic kinds of concerns. In response to open-ended questions that we asked about trade during the Great Recession, many of our, our respondents espoused what I, I have come to call the oxygen mask theory of trade support. Uh, just as flight attendants tell their passengers that they must secure their own oxygen mask before helping others, many of our respondents offered kind of an eerily similar, similar rationale for isolationist views at that time. Uh, I'll just give you a couple examples. In one person's words, Despite my want for global collaboration and the like, I'd really like to be able to see America take care of itself first. That way we can assist everyone else later on. Another respondent said, what comes to mind is the loss of family and jobs in the U.S. We need to take care of our own first, neighbors second. If we don't take care of our own first, how can we be expected to help others when we are in such need ourselves? So these comments were all long before anybody had heard of COVID, but the same logic I think is likely to apply. Just like the flight attendant who tells you that you need to adjust your own oxygen mask before assisting others, people constantly say that we need to fix things here at home before we focus on doing anything overseas. Of course, that's not particularly realistic, um, but it is a very predictable reaction to threat, and COVID has really been nothing if not extremely threatening to people. Now, the kinds of sentiments that I'm describing um, don't jibe well with expending U.S. energy going after China uh, this campaign season. Aside from this strong impulse to focus inward in times of threat, second reason this strategy seems unlikely to be successful is that in order to exploit a situation like this as a politician, you need to have an issue where the public is not already well aligned with the elites in either party. And that's what trade was before 2016. Both Republican and Democratic elites liked trade a whole lot more than the general public did. But that's no longer the case. In fact, ironically, uh, the same President Trump who was elected on such a strong anti-trade platform has, through the course of his presidency, accidentally convinced Republicans to view trade even more positively than Democrats now view it. That hasn't been the case since 2008, um, during the, the last... 20 years almost, Democrats in the mass public have actually been more supportive of trade than Republicans. The huge gap between the negative views of Republicans and positive attitudes of Democrats toward trade that was true of 2016 steadily narrowed throughout Trump's administration so that as of this February, Republicans are now significantly more pro-trade than Democrats. And as I said, uh, that's a big change since 2016. Again, Trump's uh, skills as an opinion leader 
uh, don't appear particularly strong strategically by relocating where the Republican Party was on trade in 2016. Uh, it helped him. Um, but at this point, he now has a, a collection of Republicans who are extremely pro-trade. And if I had more time, I might explain how this interesting change came about. But the point I want to make is that regardless, it puts him in a very awkward position to use trade as an election issue again. The important points moving forward are that there is no longer an easy way to leverage trade as a campaign issue, nor is there really any easy way uh, to claim that he knew China was actually the supervillain all along. So this particular strategy, I think, is unlikely um, to bear fruit because both Republicans and Democrats feel roughly the same about China as of February and March of this year. Predicting elections is obviously uh, a bad idea. It's widely known to be a fool's errand, but I will share with you that my own foolish prediction here is that playing the China card this year will not help Trump's cause with the American public. Thanks. Dana, thank you. Um, just as a quick question, um, in Morris Fiorona's work on public attitudes, he found that um, they, they tend not to vary much at all, even over very, very long periods of time. So I'm just wondering, do you think you were looking for too much for changes of opinions over, I'll call it the four years here? Well, actually, we do find huge changes of opinion. Um, for example, on trade, uh, Republicans have gone from being very anti-trade to being very pro-trade in the last four years. So my own uh, experience with the panelists has actually convinced me that there's a lot more going on uh, in terms of opinion change than we think. Uh, it may not last long term. Uh, people are fairly malleable, particularly on international issues where they don't have strong information grounding them. Um, but I think there's a lot more opinion change than um, I won't say than we give the public credit for because it's not always opinion change in what I would consider a, a logical direction. But no, I, I think opinions do change and certainly opinions on things like the economy change based on partisanship, like, you know, very predictably. And just one last thing on, on Trump's trade policies. I'm wondering if they're maybe a little bit more nuanced than you're referencing. So, for example, with regards to the U.K., um, Obama said he wanted to put a, a U.K.-U.S. treaty at the back of the queue, and Trump said he wanted to put it at the front. Um, that would not be indicative of anti-trade as a general matter, but it would be pro-trade as related to, I don't know what he thinks, but maybe it relates to things he thinks where trade is more fair, where he thinks that, you know, on the China side, he thinks that they're abusing the, the free trade metrics. Is there a way to make it a little bit more precise in the, in the definition? Yes, and although it would be hard for me to go into that here, I'll give a plug for my forthcoming book on, called Winners and Losers. Uh, the psychology of attitudes toward trade. And one of the things I'll just say off the bat is the kind of details about specific trade agreements that you're talking about are not things the public really um, knows about. Certainly elites do. Um, we have found that most members of the public had no attitudes at all about the USMCA, for example, uh, throughout that period of time. So they tend to have very... Um, what I want to say is a consistent attitudes toward trade, whether you ask about a particular policy or trade in general, uh, they don't tend to differentiate a whole lot. Great. Um, our next speaker is Barry Schwartz. 
He is a professor of social theory and social action at Swarthmore College. Go ahead, Barry. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, let me make one small correction. I used to be at Swarthmore. I retired, and I'm now uh, at Berkeley in the business school. Um, so I don't have any data for you. I'm going to talk about the the relation between security and wealth, uh, uh, particularly as uh, made salient to me with the current COVID crisis. Um, we have collectively really come to worship efficiency as a society. The idea is to use less and less to get more and more. Efficiency is good. Inefficiency is a waste. An economist teaches Barry, can you speak up a little bit? I'm having trouble hearing you. Economists teach us that increased efficiency is really the only way a society's standard of living improves. Uh, so if you want to make material progress as a society, you have to become more efficient. And what has that meant? Uh, in the economy, it's meant streamlined supply chains, just-in-time delivery, no slack in the workforce. Uh, the more you can do that, the more you've created an engine of efficiency. No assets sit idle. Every dollar spent leads to a dollar earned, and our lives just keep getting better and better. And we've basically subscribed to this view. Efficiency is good, and more efficiency is better. In designing a car, enemies of efficiency are things like friction and air resistance. And car manufacturers struggle to squeeze as many miles per gallon as possible out of their car designs uh, with the aim of designing a vehicle that uses every ounce of fuel to move the car forward. Air resistance and the grab of the road hold the car back, so they're just wasted energy. And in the case of finance, um, a historian, Niall Ferguson, wrote, wrote a book um, several years ago called The Ascent of Money, where he pointed out, uh, hard for this is for us to um, imagine, that there used to not be money. And uh, the, the big impact that money had is it reduced friction in economic transaction. The farmer didn't have to bring a sack of potatoes to get eggs and butter. Instead, the exchange could be made with uh, with money. Uh, and even more um, significantly, the, the farmer with the potatoes didn't even need to have the potatoes then. He could purchase on credit uh, and then pay when the potato harvest actually occurred. And so money and credit and various other forms of economic um, uh, invention consistently reduced the coefficient of drag. And you could argue that this is really what has happened in the financial world over the last 200 years, more and more of an effort to make financial transactions more uh, increasingly efficient and eliminate friction. Um, and this is a good thing. Um, but is it possible that there can be too much of a good thing? Uh, I think the answer to that is yes, um, and that um, the right way to think about efficiency is that some efficiency is good, but more efficiency may not be better. Uh, the philosopher Aristotle had made an argument 2,000 years ago about the importance of finding the mean, which is the right amount. Courage is the mean 
between cowardice on the one hand and recklessness on the other. And so efficiency, lack of friction, lack of resistance may be good, but only in the right amount. Uh, and the poet William Blake, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, uh, uh, said um, that perhaps the only way to figure out how much of something is enough is by experiencing too much. And in my view, the financial crisis of, of uh, a decade ago taught us, taught me, that we had become too efficient. Uh, it became too easy to create credit instruments so that you didn't have to bother uh, actually checking on the creditworthiness of individual borrowers because you securitized it. And so now you could be turning around, um, generating and turning around loans almost on a dime instead of it taking time, effort, and uh, work on the part of the lender to assure the creditworthiness of the borrower. We became too efficient, and the house of cards collapsed. What about COVID? Uh, I think that when the um, pandemic crests and starts to subside in a major way, there will be a huge amount of attention paid, there already is, to the world's lack of preparation, especially the United States' lack of preparation um, that the pandemic revealed. A lot of attention will be paid, as it should, to stockpiling key supplies and machines, uh, to making sure there's adequate hospital capacity, um, to making sure supply chains are robust and stuff like that. And no doubt, when the dust settles, we will be readier for the next pandemic than we were for this pandemic. That is, we will immediately turn our attention to things like stockpiles and supply chains so that we are better prepared when the next thing happens. But I think we need to think about this a little bit more broadly because the next thing that happens may not be a pandemic. It may be other another major uh, challenge to our collective well-being. And so we, what we need to be thinking about is not just how to stockpile so that a carbon copy of this problem we'll be able to deal with, but how do we conduct ourselves um, so that whatever problem arises, we'll be better able to deal with it than we were the last time. And I think a focus really that we should take generally is that we should uh, endeavor to be a little bit less efficient, uh, introduce a little bit more friction than what we have regarded as, uh, as optimal. Uh, there's a sense in which friction uh, is like an insurance policy. Think about insurance. Every year that you don't get into a car accident, you've wasted your car insurance premium. Every year your house doesn't burn down, you've wasted your homeowner's insurance premium. Every year you're healthy, you've wasted your health insurance premium, and so on. That is, insurance that we don't use is wasted, and all of this waste adds up. Uh, and I think that's sort of the official attitude, that what we want, essentially, is to go through life naked in the service of maximizing efficiency, which uh, in turn enhances material well-being. And I think this is a colossal mistake. The only thing that saves us from this is that there are regulations that protect us from actually having as little insurance as we might otherwise like. Now, um, 
as I said at the beginning, I th- well, maybe I didn't say it, but I titled this the, um, the trade-off between security and wealth. And that may seem like it has nothing to do with what I'm uh, talking about. So let me explain. A hundred years ago, a naturalist, von Eukskill was his name, made the case that the way evolution works is that it shapes organisms so that their perceptual abilities are precisely attuned to their survival needs. In other words, you build into organisms a kind of redundancy to make sure that they will notice the things they have to notice in a complicated world to enable them to protect themselves, to find food, and to reproduce. The price they pay is that there may be a lot of stuff going on that they don't notice at all. So if you and a squirrel take a walk in a beautiful woods at at, uh, Yosemite, for example, you'll notice lots and lots of things that the squirrel doesn't. But the one thing we know is that the squirrel will notice all of the things it has to notice, and you may not. The squirrel does not have the wealth of experience that a person does, but it does have the security that it will notice what matters most and know how to do what it needs to do to survive. And von Eukskill's point was that, at least in evolutionary terms, security, resilience, robustness to an uncertain world is more important to well-being than wealth of experience. And I think this is a lesson that we need as a society to relearn. We should focus more of our attention on how to build security in all of our systems, robustness in all of our systems, and less attention to making them as efficient as they possibly can be. This this applies in the case of the next pandemic, but it applies in lots and lots of other contexts as well. I'm almost done. We'd all like a car that gets uh, 100 miles to the gallon. The forces of friction that slow us down are an expensive annoyance. But when we're driving a car, we know where we're going, and we're in control, more or less. Uh, Fast is good. Although even here, a little bit of friction can forestall disaster when you happen to be driving on an icy road. Driving is perilous enough, and life is not as predictable as driving. We don't always know where we're going. We're not always in control. Black ice is everywhere. And in my view, COVID-19 is the mother of icy roads. And a little something to slow us down in the uncertain world we inhabit may turn out to be a lifesaver. Building friction into the system is building resilience into the system, and it may be our insurance policy against catastrophe. Thanks. Barry, just actually one quick question before we go to the next speaker. Yeah. Um, are you thinking of this in the context of, like, food? Um, in other words, in prehistoric times, food was extremely rare and very much of a Malthusian challenge. And... The result was is that we were constantly worried about starving and doing everything we can to store and prepare food. Um, but now food is basically free, and we've turned obese um, as a society. Is, are you really saying that we need to be careful about that overeating? No. Or... Um, what we need to do is be careful that we have slack in all of our systems of production and distribution that we employ more people than we need so that when things get really crazy busy, we can handle the demands on us. Um, 
that we do have warehouses full of things that we may never have occasion to use so that they're there in the event that we need them. Um, so it's not just about food. I think that uh, that resilience and robustness is, uh, is achieved at the expense of efficiency. And what we've done collectively is take it for granted that nothing terrible will happen. And so we don't worry about resilience and robustness enough because our focus is on efficiency. That's what gets share prices to go up. That's what gets huge bonuses to go to CEOs. Uh, and we've just taken it for granted that nothing terrible will happen. Well, something terrible has happened, and there's going to be another terrible thing that happens. We don't know exactly what it is. And if we neglect robustness and resilience in the service of in enhancing efficiency, we will be as ill-prepared for the next catastrophe as we were for this one. Um, and by the way, there's some disagreement about how hard it was for people to find food prehistorically. Um, it, you know, People have argued that it was sort of easy to just be a hunter-gatherer. It got hard once you started to have societies, and then power dynamics got introduced, and some people managed to control these resources and, and make it hard for other people to get access to them. So that's a debatable point, just how hard, how much time people had to spend feeding themselves back in the uh, bad old days. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Dean Adler. He is co-founder of Lubert Adler Real Estate. Uh, please go ahead. Thank Great. You. Thank you, Larry. Uh, I'm going to address the post-COVID changes to the retail marketplace. And we're going to look at this through the lens of the consumer the creator and maker of goods, and then finally the landlord and the traditional brick-and-mortar retailers. So let's start with the consumer. Um, actually, there have been some benefits from COVID to the, to the consumer. Two positives. Number one, uh, it has enhanced our ability to get our products when we want them, although the delays there were huge delays due to hoarding. And number two, where we want it. COVID forced many retailers to accelerate and enhance their transition towards delivery, both in-store experiences with online orders and pickups and or delivery. Good example is the grocery stores. Historically, the grocers felt that they were relatively immune from Amazon because consumers wanted to see the food, feel the food, touch the food, taste the fresh produce, meat and seafood, so they went into the shop. COVID actually changed this whole concept and forced both the consumers and the grocers to move online for a higher percentage of their distribution. And interesting enough, many of the consumers who never ordered grocery before and were forced to now tried it and they liked it. So you're going to see huge growth in really the change of grocery stores that they're going to create micro-fulfillment centers within their stores through robotic micro-fulfillment. So they act both as stores and as distribution centers to be closer to the customer. They're going to enhance their online process, and they will actually do more of online and pick up the store to avoid the expense of delivery charges because that's where that's an e-commerce model is actually profitable to grocers versus the e-commerce and then uh, delivering by 
uh, car or truck. Second, the consumer is going to see greater and greater assortment of product because there's more new innovative products that are being spurred, spurred on. And number two, greater and greater pricing transparency. Basically, technology uh, and e-commerce is enhanced pricing transparency on the behalf and benefit of the consumer. The negative for the consumer, however, in COVID has really been quite significant. Post-COVID, the experiential lifestyle retailers, the restaurateurs, the bars, the theaters, the gyms, these retailers base their, connect, their business plans on connectivity and social interaction, intensification, and these are the ones severely hampered. And unfortunately, the, the people who are hurt the most are the service providers. They're the ones in this space that are being hurt the most. This includes the chefs, the bakers, the baristas, the wellness, the trainers, the makers. These were the, what I'll call the service, the, the people who provided us authenticity and soul. They brought life, vitality, diversity, and authenticity to our urban centers. And these are the ones, unfortunately, are the ones least likely to recover and may be on the sidelines both short-term and perhaps even long-term. And the unfortunate result for us in the short and midterm is that our streets may be lined up with blandless commodity corporate brands because they're the ones who have the capital to basically stay in business and take a few body punches during this period almost a one-size-fits-all strategy, which is exactly opposite of what we wanted our urban centers to be. And basically, every street in every city looks the same, very similar to the dated mall structure. We go through one mall, it doesn't matter where you are, and all looks and feels the same. Let's do the second impact, the creator and maker of product. The creator and maker of product in a post-COVID e-commerce and technological world will continue to expand and deliver new and innovative products and services. And they'll have greater distribution opportunities. So, for example, COVID recently has spurred a huge growth of at-home health products, the mirrors, um, different type of equipment. You now have online classes, you have one-on-one classes online. I call it telewellness. Basically, a whole industry within a few months just grew in, in great size and emphasis. There's also going to be a greater emphasis and a greater awareness of sustainable and healthy products. Health matters. You know, I used to be involved with looking at buildings and creating a healthy building, and every time we were going to start construction, I needed, we needed to shave some money off the budget, and what do we cut out? All the sustainable and healthy products, because no one really cared about a healthy building. Now they care about fresh air, fresh air ventilation, health now matters, and you're going to see that in products. Um, you're going to see new concepts on, on food and beverage. Maybe slow for the restaurant's return, but we've all been reading about the cloud kitchens, but the cloud kitchen's in a different format, not a, a box in a parking lot just doing 100% delivery, but you're going to be cloud kitchens with five chefs. He's taking 200 square feet, and they'll do 75% of their business on delivery, but, but the delivery carriers are very expensive, but they'll do 25% for walk-in retail, or they'll serve campuses or big office buildings. That will be a, growth, a big growth area looking forward. 
The negative for the creators and maker products is the fall off of venture capital funding. The crash of the unicorns will lead to much more cautious funding, no more mad rush to finance uh, anything new. Number three, the landlords and traditional brick and mortars. Basically, there are pre-existing conditions before COVID. There was too much supply. You had a big new competitor, Amazon. Landlords clung to their own ways. The only bright spot was the emergence of the open-air lifestyle centers, perhaps in the suburbs where they created a vibrant uh, center, outdoor, with upbeat, vibrant experience. Post-COVID, unfortunately, this concept and much of retail and landlords have been annihilated and crushed. So supply will exponentially increase. Why? Because 80% of the malls will self-destruct and just leave boxes and boxes empty in the communities. The best malls actually will thrive, i.e. the Simon malls, because they're going to be the consolidator of the closed ones. The lifestyle centers, unfortunately, they're going to be destroyed in the short term. Here's the big question. You're a landlord, and you spend $250 a foot to go attract five restaurants. So you spend millions and millions of bring-in restaurants. Now they close. Are you going to now put in millions and millions to attract new restaurants, or are you going to be reluctant to fund them to bring them back to your centers? The big, back, the big box power centers, you know, the TJ Maxx, Ross, Bed Bath & Beyond, PetSmart, Staple, Walmart, Target, Kohl's. Um, there's, there's going to be winners and losers. Some tenants will thrive, the Marshalls, the Ross, the TJ Maxx's. Many will die. And as a landlord for these businesses, there's just – you're, the whole capital markets is frozen because how could you own a center when you don't know who will live and who will die? And for those who live, when, they're, when their term leases come up in five years, what rents are they going to pay? And those tenants could go down the street to the empty mall and pay basically nothing. So there's basically no, no pricing power or value for the landlords in this space. And finally, the grocers. The grocery thrived in COVID because they didn't have alternative. And they grew, and they prospered, and they were forced to go into um, an e-commerce mode and deliver. But the other thing we learned is uh, not all grocers are, are equal. And for them to be successful in the future, it's going to be those grocers who can pivot and provide micro-fulfillment within their stores, which has a huge capital cost. So those grocers with real balance sheets and, and real execution and strength will win, and unfortunately, many of the regional or smaller grocers who cannot afford to pivot will lose. So in sum, significant changes in the retail landscape and in retail investing. And the key is that both the retailers, creators, and landlords and brick-and-mortar retailers must adapt to the changing desires and needs of the consumer. Thank you. Thanks, team. I'll come back to you in the Q&A. Uh, our next speaker is Michael Bordeaux. He is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Monetary and F Financial History at Rutgers. Michael, go ahead. Okay. I'm going to talk about the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve has acted most aggressively to shield the U.S. economy from the COVID-19 pandemic. The increase in its balance sheet to over $5 trillion is unprecedented. It has crossed many lines of the sand in providing rescue support to non-financial institutions and markets. Indeed, 
It's planned to lend directly up to $600 billion to small and medium-sized business, flies in the face of all of the old tenants of monetary theory. So I'm going to argue today that a re-examination of four monumental historical upheavals is of highest value in understanding the Fed's actions. First is the is the pandemic of 1918-1919. It killed upwards of 50 million people across the world and 675,000 uh, in the United States. There were two waves. Uh, the first was in the spring of 1918, which began in army camps in the Midwest. This is during World War I, remember? And then in the fall, when the troops came back, there were no cures or vaccines available. The highest mortality rate was in working age people between ages 20 and 40. The pandemic led to a mild recession. There was a sharp drop in industrial production in the fall and then a speedy bounce back. There was no increase in unemployment. There were non-pharmaceutical interventions that taken just like today at the, at the local level. They had masks, they, uh, schools and church closings, et cetera. But there were no mandated lockdowns, and the federal government had nothing to do with it. There was no monetary policy response. A much milder reflection. Why did they have a much milder re a recession than we're having? Well, first of all, different economic structure. The U.S. was less urbanized, more primary and secondary production, and less services. And the second thing is World War One, And the negative shocks to the labor force and consumption that did occur from people getting sick and people getting scared were offset by the war demands of the government. Third is that people had very different attitude towards mortality back then. Uh, medical science was much less advanced. There were many diseases that people just got and died, no vaccines, et cetera. And you were in the middle of World War One when just millions of people were dying. So the lesson that comes out of that is that for today is that without the mandatory lockdown, we might have had a milder recession driven only by the endogenous fear response on spending and hours worked. Second episode is the Great Contraction, the Great Depression, 1929 to 33. That's the worst depression of all time. There was a 35% fall in real GDP and in prices and unemployment peaked at 25%, which is pretty close to where we are today. It reflected a failure of the Fed, both in causing the downturn in 1929 and in not preventing four serious banking panics from 1930 to 33. Milton Friedman uh, made this point in a famous book in 1963 with Anna Schwartz. The key lessons from that event is the need for aggressive monetary policy to stabilize the economy and for an effective lender of last resort. Third event is World War II. The war was a huge existential shock, just like now. It required a massive government intervention to marshal resources for the war effort. The Federal Reserve became subservient to the Treasury, financed its fiscal deficits freely, and pegged both short-term and long-term Treasury uh, securities. There was an inflation that followed, but it was suppressed by wage price controls. After the war, the Treasury pressured the Fed to continue it's accommodative monetary policy and the interest rate pegs. And what happened is once the controls, the wage price controls were removed, we had a big run up in inflation. It increased to 15% per year from 1945 to 48. And then the Fed pushed to get its independence back to fight inflation, and it did that in 1951. The key lesson for that is that 
for the Fed for right now is once the pandemic emergency comes to an end, it must reduce its expansionary policy to avoid a run-up in inflation. And to allay inflationary expectations, it should clearly spell out its exit strategy. My last episode is the recent financial crisis, 2002, seven to eight. And chairman of the Fed, Bernanke, was he was a student of the Great Depression. He followed aggressive lender of last resort policies, kind of what Friedman and Schwartz suggested should have happened in the Great Depression. And he also followed, they also followed expansive monetary policies until the, the Fed hit the zero lower amount. That means interest rates uh, became zero. And then they followed quantitative easing and forward guidance. These policies did work to temper the global financial crisis, but it took a long time for the Fed to realize that the crisis was primarily a solvency event and not a liquidity event. The key action that ended the crisis was the stress test of the major commercial banks. The Fed's lender of last resort policies and forward guidance only had a limited effect in speeding up the recovery from the global financial crisis. Okay, quantitative easing was hindered by paying interest on excess reserves and a poor communication strategy. So the last point I wanna make is what's the lesson for today? The Fed is using the same playbook as it did in the global financial crisis, but it's added in some new institutions and markets, corporate bonds and unis to shield by its lender of last resort policy. This suggests that the road of credit policy has gotten even wider and the threats to the Fed's independence even greater. Moral hazard has also increased. Moreover, basing its monetary policy efforts on quantitative easing and forward guidance, again, will continue to be of limited consequence. The Fed has rejected the use of negative rates from its toolkit, a tool which might actually be more potent, along with central bank digital currency. And so, to conclude, the lessons from history never exactly repeat themselves, but they often rhyme, and not heeding them is perilous. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I'll come back to you in a minute. Uh, our next speaker is Joe Farrell. Joe is a partner with Latham & Watkins. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, thanks, Larry. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, I'm going to address uh, some liability issues that businesses will face, uh, particularly with regard to employees and customers. Uh, the first and, and most obvious one is liability for COVID illnesses. Uh, and there, in addressing the risk, we have to start with a couple basic principles. Uh, and that is, how do you become liable for this? With regard to customers, visitors, and other third parties, that's a negligence standard, which means that the business needs to act with reasonable care in what they're doing. Uh, deviating from normal standards of care and guidance uh, will put the business at risk. Um, with employees, it's a slightly different environment because it's largely workers' compensation. And that is a system, as many of you are probably familiar with, where the liability is almost automatic if someone is injured or becomes ill at work. Uh, it is unique when applied to illnesses that are in the public, however, because normally it is difficult to establish that someone contracted, say, the flu at the office and therefore put in a workers' compensation claim when they could have gotten it anywhere else. The same idea applies with COVID. It can be difficult to show it was a work-related illness unless there's a, a widespread outbreak in that workplace. Um, however, uh, 
a number of states and jurisdictions have flipped the burden of proof and are assuming that if you become ill while working, you got the illness at work uh, in the case of COVID. Uh, that is a temporary change in the burden of proof, but one that puts a significant risk on the employer because although there is a liability limit on workers' compensation claims, uh, if you have a large number of them and you are not adequately insured or your insurance has large deductibles, uh, there could be an existential risk to the business. Uh, fortunately, um, the way you avoid liability is also the way you avoid illness. Obviously, if people don't get sick, you aren't going to be sued, you aren't going to be liable for it. Um, and taking the steps to avoid people becoming ill, even if someone does become ill, is going to be your defense, particularly in the case of a negligence claim. Uh, that means that if you want to avoid risk and keep your customers, visitors, and employees well, you need to follow CDC and local state health guidance. You need to stay on top of state and local restrictions and make sure you comply with them. Uh, and you need to identify experts on health, safety, and sanitation and work with them to improve your work environment. Uh, and that work environment needs to be, and that those improvements need to be tailored to the particular environment. There's quite a bit of difference in what you might need to do in an office versus a factory versus handling field employees who are out visiting with third parties. Um, so relying on that guidance and, and hewing to it will be your best defense should someone become ill. Um, and it's also important here to consider uh, your assumptions. Um, many businesses just do business the way they've always done it uh, and don't think about a lot of things. Uh, we're now being forced to rethink how we conduct business and even physical configurations of workplaces. Uh, and it will be important in defending any claims down the road that you demonstrate that you did consider how you did things and that there was a good reason for the way you conducted your business, not just because that's how we always did it. I also wanted to address liability for employment actions uh, that will come about as a result of this situation. Um, the basic rules haven't changed. Uh, all the laws that were in effect before are still in effect. We've got one or two new ones like the uh, FFCRA and the CARES Act, which provide some additional leave and maybe some restrictions on the conduct of employers receiving federal loans. But basically, we're still dealing with the same set of discrimination laws, disability laws, uh, that we've been dealing with before, and the way they were handled is still the way to handle them. Uh, however, it's a bit of a stress test right now because you've got a lot of remote employees, a lot of laid off employees, and you also have a lot of people who are just feeling very concerned about the work environment. Um, <clears throat> in that environment, it's probably not wise to be aggressive and to um, be rigid when dealing with your employees, uh, even if you're right, you might get sued and that's still uh, an expense and uh, a challenge. Uh, and you know, being aggressive and rigid here is uh, not only likely to get you sued, but it's going to create a very unhappy workplace and you have a lot of very stressed employees at this point in time. Addressing some of the questions that were um, set up here, 
Can you fire employees who refuse to come to work because they're scared and don't want to come to work? Um, the, the general answer is you could. Um, however, um, as I noted, that might not be the best course of action if you can avoid it. Uh, you may get sued even if you're right. Um, in addition, you have to consider the reason that the person doesn't want to come. Um, it could be that they have a, simply a, gene, a general fear and they don't have any particular health risk or other concern. They just are afraid. Um, that puts you in the area where you could terminate someone if you chose. Uh, however, if they've got an underlying health condition and maybe a particular risk if they come to work, uh, you do have to treat them like any other disability and see if you can reasonably accommodate that person. That might mean allowing them to work remotely for longer. It might mean allowing them to take leave uh, for a period of time. Uh, all of those need to be considered on an individual basis. The other thing you need to consider is whether that employee's fear is because you're not doing things very well in your workplace. And then you have a potential whistleblower should you not be complying with, um, certainly with orders or law, and potentially if you're not complying with general safety standards. Uh, what can you do if an employee is upset about taking public transportation and wants to work from home? Um, Again, generally, an employer is within its rights to set the hours and location of work, uh, and you could, in theory, insist that most employees hop on the subway in New York City at rush hour and get to the office on time. Um, that being said, again, you've got to consider the employee with uh, medical risks or disabilities. Uh, you've got to consider whether that's the best thing for the rest of your workforce, uh, having that person come in under those circumstances. Uh, and beyond that, um, <clears throat> there are a lot of things you could do to maybe mitigate the problem. Uh, adjusting hours, being flexible about when people come in so that even if they do need to take public transportation, they can do it at a better time. Uh, or uh, allowing them to work from home potentially for a period of time until the public transportation system is considered uh, pretty safe. And I know that New York is doing a lot, for example, to keep the subway system clean, uh, but you will face these concerns. And again, being flexible for a period of time may be the wisest thing to do. Um, what happens you know, I'm when- gonna I'm gonna cut you off okay. there. Um, our next speaker is uh, not listed on the program. Uh, his name is Chris Arnotti. Chris joined us in one of the first weeks. And during one of those first weeks, he said that if you keep um, poor people locked up for a long time, it's a powder keg and that we should expect to see rioting and violence. We see violence and rioting going on right now. Chris, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing? Yeah, um, well, thank you again. And I, one, of the, one, of the, one of the few times in my life I'm not happy to have been right. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, I think what we all know of um, what we've been watching on TV and what we've been seeing is, um, I mean, uh, 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 you know, the, the riots, the protests, the looting, et cetera, um, was certainly um, started um, the, 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 the proverbial spark that lit the fire was um, the police brutality in Minneapolis was you know was clearly seen by everybody and was um, the uh, you know again the spark. But this pandemic has um, created an extraordinarily dry tender for that spark to spread through, and that uh, that dry tender is um, been there for a while. 
Um, it's you know the growing inequality, but the pandemic in many ways is like a part particle accelerator that has exposed you know the inner truth, um, has made kind of the existing substructure much more much more apparent and easier to see, um, and that existing substructure is one of um, great inequality, um, and it's something that you is people can't can't you know deny. Um, I, when I when I first spoke, I talked about what I would call the laundromat gap. You know, the idea of sheltering in place is um, is is very easy to think about when you have a large place. Um, it's very different when you have a small play. I, the example I always use is the fourth floor walk up in the Bronx with five, five pe nine people using one bathroom. It's very hard to shelter in place in that environment. Um, and, and then there is the economic um, impact, which has also fallen disproportionately on um, the commun poorer communities and, and urban communities. But uh, what I what I like to say is a little bit. I think about another form of inequality that is kind of really exposed and I kind of I think the people I spent you know seven years interviewing mostly poor lower income minorities would not describe it as this but it it's how I would describe it is which is libertarianism for you and authoritarianism for me which is the the, the difference in how we regulate um, communities um, there's a, gr a massive inequality in, in, in how regulation both is enforced and is and 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 um, and, and how it's uh, legislated. Poor communities are overregulated. It's just it's very simple, and they're over and 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 the um, and, and um, the, the regulations are highly enforced. I mean, I just think about from 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 police activity to you know the stop and frisking to um, just simply things like trying to start a barber shop in, in, a, in, in a poor community and, and, the, and the amount of loops you have to jump through to, to do that and how much harder it is when, you, when you're lower income. And I think a lot of people saw this, um, this quarantine in place as kind of a form of overregulation that was fell hardest once again on, on, on lower income communities. I think, you know, the most kind of graphic example of that is the um, skate park in California, Los Angeles, in which, you know, authorities literally put sand in a skate park. Um, and in great, wonderful human spirit, of course, the, um, the, the kids who drive motorbikes then <laughs> found it and turned it into a, a motorbike um, park. But I think what, we, what we're seeing here is a big impact, you know, a kind of a a, a large reaction to kind of uh, an environment that's been really hard on people who who have are lower income and poor, and especially in urban neighborhoods. And I, I, I just think that um, this is not going to end. And I, I, I would also just want to add one more last thing, which is a very simple fact, which is boredom. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> People don't have much to do now, um, and there's you know you can't go you can't pick up a game of basketball and then the cops come and run you away. Um, you know schools out, um, a lot of people are unemployed. You know I was telling Larry that uh, I, I go against my usual rule of um, having a view on this, but this is not a great um, this is not a great example of how you be, universal basic income would play out, in which you have a, a lot of restive people with nothing to do. So uh, I really think that what we're seeing here is not surprising, even though it's, it's painful to see. 
Um, and, I, and I think we've really laid the groundwork here for this over the, over the last three decades in, in the way we regulate lower income communities versus how we regulate um, wealthy communities. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to go to our question and answer period. Um, Patsy, are you still with us? I am. I am. Thanks. Patsy, um, if Chris continues to be right and that there does turn into be substantial rioting in our major urban areas, um, what are we going to do on our other objective, which is to keep the jails um, not densely populated and our concern for COVID and public health? How are we going to deal with that conflict? You know, I think this this yes, speaks to yeah. Can you hear me? Um, I I think yeah. I think this speaks to the the larger question of of what something like COVID um, has done, which is, and it's not just in this nation; it's within communities and with and between communities and cities and nations globally. Uh, the the planetary impact is tremendous, and and the the impact of the disease of, of this pandemic, at least even in the first wave and the long lasting one, economically, socially, everything going forward is beyond the, the question of incarceration, right? It's the, the impact of, of the disease on people who have underlying disease and less access to healthcare and less access to, to all those life circumstances, those social determinants of health, um, there's a disproportionate burden of pathology in the beginning. There's disproportionate impact on death and loss. Um, there's the disproportionate impact on people who don't have the luxury of self-isolation, um, who don't have the luxury of working from home, um, who've lost their jobs or still have work but need to go in every day. Um, it's the it's the institutionalization of, of all those impacts of who gets arrested for things that people of color won't get arrested for, people of, of, of better means can, can get bailed out. I think this is, this is, um, this is truly shining, shining a light on what, what, what our societies and our nations have done, um, both environmentally um, and economically, um, and that unless people begin to step forward and address the status quo and what the systems and societies have done, in the past, these will these things will continue. The, the mere fact of people being incarcerated is is almost it's the end point, right? It's the all the way downstream piece. Um, so I think it's a much broader question than 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 the final result of incarceration. Uh, well, let me make next questions for Lauren. Lauren, um, in some of your articles that's been published on your website, you mentioned that you need to reduce contact by 90% to flatten the curve and not by 75%, which will still end in the exponential. I guess I'm really surprised that those countries that are seeing a substantial flattening have been able to achieve the 90%. And second is, is that how are we able to achieve a 90% reduction if we intend to open up our businesses, restaurants, schools, and streets? How are we going to do that? Yeah. So it's a great question. So it really depends on how you measure it. The way to think about it is what do we do need to do to bring the reproduction number below us to really get us ourselves to a point where uh, we expect the outbreaks to be self-limiting and kind of dissipate on their own. And I mean, depending on how you calculate it, it's 90%. It's very high. It's a lot. But I think that um, we're sort of what seems to be happening, at least in the United States, is we're sort of giving up on the idea that we are going to be able to maintain um, 
contact reduction or ramp up testing, tracing, isolation, whatever it is, we're sort of giving up on the idea, at least in some cities or states, that we're actually going to be able to bring the reproduction number under one. And so we're sort of moving into this regime of, okay, well, if, if we are starting to relax, um, we're going to expect to see exponential growth again. We're going to expect to see waves uh, starting to pick up in you know, mid to late summer. Um, how are we going to manage that going forward under the assumption that we're, you know, we're not achieving the 90% or whatever it takes to bring the reproduction number, un number under one? And that's what these sort of triggering policies are designed to do, to kind of track you know, if and when we get to the point where uh, we expect to see exponential growth, when do we need to tighten things up a little bit or message about individually voluntarily taking precautionary measures in order to avert very rapid and overwhelming surges in, in healthcare demand. Thank you. Alex, um, Kim made some comments about how tight the networks are in colleges where we've got them, people have people in class, people have friends, they have athletics, the Greek system, et cetera. And so I think if they used some of your technology, they would find out that if someone gets sick, literally the entire school would have to be in lockdown. How do you think about um, the tightness of both networks as it relates to colleges and the challenge we face of selective quarantining? So we've actually looked at the spread of flu in entire colleges using mobile phone, but we have individual level data and we can actually ask how often do people come within, you know, three feet of each other. And yes, everything gets connected to everything. But what we're doing at MIT is trying to do something I call bubbles and brackets, which is uh, you can self-isolate in space, but you can also isolate in time. So don't do everything at the same time. Allow interaction, but uh, controlled interaction, and you have to then, of course, track who gets sick and how. Uh, we've built an interesting system uh, that isn't yet up and going, but hope to be up and going, using uh, the existing Wi-Fi network that helps us control space-time density of interaction. Uh, and when somebody gets sick, you can also do contact tracing. Uh, obviously, the contact tracing is not perfect because it's Wi-Fi. Uh, but the hope is, is that you can do enough distancing by looking not only at space, but time uh, to get things done. The other thing we do is we have uh, sort of daily monitoring of behavior across the entire Boston area because universities are not isolated, uh, at least ours isn't. So we have to keep track of where there are outbreaks, are those people coming to MIT? Something like 25% of the people on the campus are not MIT employees or students. They're people servicing things, they're people uh, just cutting through, so forth. And uh, so we have quite a while long at, at building that infrastructure. We'll see. <laughs> it, no guarantee that it's going to actually do as well as we hope. Thank you. Shafi, question for you. Um, what, uh, just, just some basic questions. We're, we're going to be providing. Um, these third parties with a tremendous amount of additional GPS information about ourselves. Uh, you mentioned that you're going to hopefully make it um, use and apply cryptography to it so that um, that information can be protected. But do you think 
that'll be sufficient? Do you think that these institutions that end up with the information, will they be able to keep it private? And to what extent, if, it, if this information can ultimately be hacked, how will that affect compliance? So, first of all, uh, I mean, when you say these institutions that collect data, it's not like they Maybe don't the have government data. government or Apple or whoever we're talking about. I see. So, if you talk about Apple or Google, they have the data. So, I don't understand what we're talking about in terms of collecting. But it is true that, let's say, government or health, public health would be getting more data than they have now. Maybe, you know, if these companies uh, would give them the data or if you're within some sort of organization, say, in a company or a university and you mandate it or enough people buy into it. But what your question really is, uh, is not just that there's going to be a new reality of, uh, of collecting data, but you're saying, let's say that we are going to use encryption and we'll increase this reality more than it is now. Is it secure? I think that's what you're asking. Um, and I, yes, when I talk about cryptography, I mean, if you follow the cryptography that we're proposing, you know, cryptography is always sort of a key, which is a way to decrypt information. If you somehow know the key, then you'll know more than you're supposed to. So instead of giving the key to any single agency, the wisdom is to distribute it. So like somehow break this key, so that if you think about it, you could break it to a whole bunch of pieces. If you get all the pieces together, then you can recover, let's say, uh, information. So who is holding all the pieces of the key? You could think about a combination of, of uh, agencies, uh, private, public collaboration or something. And that they have to agree, all of them, that they want to find out some statistical aggregate data and then they put the keys together. Uh, still, all of this is not allowed to finding individual data, but it allows us to find out, let's say, aggregate data. Um, and your last part of the question was that if it's broken into that effect, will that impact compliance? I think this is such a downstream question uh, because um, first it has you to be... We should, we should survive first and worry about that later? I mean, uh, there's no, there has to be an agreement of the authorities at, at stake that they want to do this. Then it has to be put in place. Then people have to opt in. And then, according to the, sort of the timeline, they, somebody has to break it. And then the compliance is going, to, is going to go down. I think we're way in the back. So we should put it in place. I think that breaking it is going to be uh, essentially very, very difficult. In, I mean, right now you're communicating over the Internet. You're buying things on Amazon. You're buying things at the time it was eBay. And for some reason, you know, people are not stealing your identity all the time. They are breaking. Uh, and this is even when they're not using the best uh, cryptography out there. So I don't see why if they do use the best cryptography out there, uh, that this is not going to work. You see what I'm saying? And so just um, thinking about uh, American society as it is, um, and if you make it an opt-in, I mean, you need an enormous percentage of people to make this tracing work to participate. If you get a very, very small opt-in, then have you achieved anything through this process? Well, that, that is the issue, right? So that's why I was saying that if you get regulators to agree that these methods are compliant with um, privacy laws like GDPR or other laws, then you, you know, the opt-in is, is not required because it's not like somebody says, okay, I'm waving my, I agree that if you use this, no matter what will happen, but you make it part of a system that's regulated and is accepted, that we can collect this kind of information because we know that it protects the privacy of individuals. I see. Kim, um, you mentioned that these college campuses are very uh, highly networked, that there are very few degrees of separation, and that um, in current lecture sizes, it only takes um, 92% uh, 
uh, at, at three degrees of separation. But if we sharply shrink the lecture halls, as the plan is, um, we take it from three steps of degree of separation probably to four to get to the same sort of levels. Um, is that material? Should we care? And if that's the case, is this a reason not to bother with uh, the large lecture hall uh, limitation? So I actually think that's a better question for an epidemiologist, which I am not, um, than to me. I mean, at some level, um, as I alluded to, there are so many other sources of contact between students that you might think, well, you know, we're tinkering the margins, we're fiddling while Rome burns. Um, on the other hand, we do know that uh, the duration of exposure matters as well. Um, and, you know, that, that if the, to the extent that you can break that duration of exposure, um, especially in a confined space, um, especially a confined space where maybe the HVAC hasn't been upgraded since the 1970s because there's no money, um, you know, then, then breaking the network may have may have an effect. Um, ben and I haven't tried to formally model how uh, the virus might spread under different sort of assumptions of, of um, the reproductive rate at any given time. Um, that would be the next step here. Uh, I mean, I, I think that that moving lecture, large lectures online, um, it's kind of low-hanging fruit, uh, but we certainly can't rely on it to solve the problem. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think there is a university out there that is sort of saying, okay, all we're going to do is move the large lectures online and call it a day. Um, I'm, I've been involved in planning efforts here at Cornell, and it's a it's a multifaceted, um, endless, endless, endless committee meetings, I might add, um, exercise in trying to figure out, okay, here are all the different levers that we can possibly pull um, some of which are feasible, some of which are not feasible, whether because of money or because of surveillance concerns, um, or because of kind of the unique context of of Cornell. Um, I mean, I I was thinking about this idea of surveillance by cell phones, and I did actually look at some data from the local area. I think a safe tracker puts out some public data about um, you know where people are, and one of the biggest feeders to campus is a small business. Um, called the Bluegrass, Bluegrass Turf and Feed. Um, and it happens to be right next to the Cornell Vet Center. Um, and I think what's going on is not that there are a lot of people coming from these two places, but that happens to be where the cell tower is. And it's a little ways off in a field. Um, so, you know, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit kind of skeptical that some of these surveillance efforts might work um, in feasibility. So then you think, well, okay, the classes are someplace that most universities, even those who aren't as wealthy as Cornell, can actually do a little bit of good uh, but again, we shouldn't be relying on that. And you know, I still, I still think it's an open question, particularly if we do see another spike um, very soon about whether colleges and universities should be opening for face-to-face -face instruction in, in, in fall, no matter how many safety um, procedures they put in place. Okay, Kim, thank you. Uh, my next question is for Joe Farrell. Joe, um, you mentioned in your talk that, um, that there's a negligence standard and that you have to take reasonable care under and under normal circumstances, or if there's no, some sort of normal standard. Um, do you think that if we end up in court that that sort of normal standard will end up being the requirement, or is it a new higher level of best practices in the context of COVID-specific uh, concerns? And is that standard constantly adjusting? And then how can, you know, when we look back in time, see if that reference of what we did was sufficient at the time, if in fact people did get sick? Right. Um, well, that's a great question. And the standard stays the same in the sense of it's, quote, reasonable care. What tends to morph over time is what's reasonable. 
um, and you, you know, should be looking to the information that you have available at the time of the event. If you know that you need to keep contact, uh, you know you have a surface, for example, that is used by multiple people, you know you need to keep it clean based on current information or otherwise minimize the crossover among those people. Um, so the standard shouldn't change, but we do have to follow what information is available to us and the best guidance we have. Um, and you know the best defense for the employer is to follow the guidance and then if challenged on it, uh, demonstrate what they did. Thank you. Diana, um, just a quick question for you on trade. Is trade ever really a top 10 um, issue for voters? Uh, I would have guessed it was something in the, tw you know, at around 20. Uh, has it ever, ever achieved something in the top five? Uh, I would say no, not usually, but yes, in 2016. And part of the reason for that is you know, that's what uh, candidates were talking about. So what issues they choose to emphasize has a big effect on what public uh, opinion registers and where the differences between candidates are observed and not observed. So it can be, but uh, it, no, in the past, it certainly hasn't been. But with globalization, uh, a thing that's certainly not going to go away anytime soon, I suspect that it will be again, although perhaps not this year because of the domestic focus. And when you when you say domestic focus, usually you reference the economy. You can talk about crime. Um, as an example, we it, Chris was talking about the rioting going on in the major northern cities right now. Um, do you think that is a, a typical uh, critical domestic issue? And if it is, um, is Trump trying to get it to his inner Nixon? Is this is this going to be like 1968, where law and order becomes very important? Um, I doubt it. I I think that what's going on right now as someone who's in one of those cities where things are uh, closed down throughout Philadelphia, Center City, and so forth as a result, um, I think, if anything, this is, you know, the, the issue is race here. The issue is not um, crime, per se, so much as race. And I actually was interested in hearing from the previous speaker about why he feels that the protests are being caused by COVID because as someone, again, who, who likes to observe public opinion and what people react to, what struck me about COVID is that it has been so, such a big tragedy that is so devoid of pictures, of images that move people in part because of HIPAA, but also just because, you know, other than seeing numbers with lots of zeros next to them, there hasn't been uh, the kind of, you know, coverage that we see when this many people die in war that is very influential. And so I actually had thought that if not for COVID, these protests would have been far larger. Chris Arnotti, do you want to comment on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would just <laughs> completely disagree. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's I think, right. I mean, I think, I, think, um, I mean, I, I just think this is playing out in a visceral way for so many people. And I think, you know, it's just playing out so differently. And, and the images people do see, I mean, not to be, um, you know, not to be obnoxious, but they see fucking movie stars singing songs from their mansions. And I think there's just, there's just been, you know, there's been so much, you know, it's very easy to ignore the, the inequality in our, in our country and to, to ignore the, the police occupation of so many of these neighborhoods, 
um, even if you're on the left, because you know a lot of people on the left don't live in these neighborhoods. And I think that's impossible to ignore now, both for the residents and for people. You know, a lot, a lot of the protesting is not necessarily just the residents. It's basically younger left who are, you know, frustrated by 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 what they see, but also by the the, the anxiety of, you know, not having not knowing about their future, not knowing the college college they're going to go to, and all all these things that just make it just so much worse. I am. And in terms of the political implications, I mean, look, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a cynic realist here, and anything that heightens um, racial tension or exposes racial tension in this country, in my mind, plays to the advantage of, 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 of the racist politically. And so I, you know, or the people who are conceived to be the racist and. I think it's more like the 68 than it is the 78 model, and I, I think this helps Trump. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm not happy to have said that as somebody who, who doesn't vote for him. So you think the George Floyd video actually helps Trump? I think no. I think the the videos of 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 protests gone violent help Trump, in 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 the sense that. You know, it's, it's the it's the law and order thing. I mean, you know, I find it, I find, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I think that there's there's what this exposes in a slightly different from my theory of my book, which is that I talk about the division between the front row and the back row, the educated versus the non-educated. But I think what this is exposing is what I would call more the kind of, and I, and I use this term, and I, I'm, it's a derogatory term, and I apologize, but I don't know another one, is basically the working class and what, what the working class views to be the dependent class, the people who are on fixed income, the kind of, you know, people who, who the, the people who are on fixed income, who are seen, it's not the perception I want, I see, or you see, but the perception the voter sees that matters. And I think they, the, their perception of a lot of people are, is going to be pushed to the idea that this is, this is the unruly dependent class. And that, I think that plays in, into, into Trump's hands. It's interesting. In our public opinion data, we find that um, those aren't the folks who are most concerned about inequality. They're concerned about poverty, um, to be sure, but inequality per se is th that being a high priority issue. That's the part of this that I'm having a hard time fitting in because we don't find the people who are really upset about the police brutality and so forth uh, concerned about inequality um, as much as they are about you know, racial division. And right, obviously I, there's a huge overlap. But, but, but I guess what you're saying is that you think this is a motivator for the anti-Trump um, you know, um, for the for the basically the the working the the kind of democratic base. Um, I think this is unfortunately, and I mean, I again I'll use a trope here, which is the you know the the soccer mom in in, in Parma, um, Ohio or Cleveland or you know I mean this is this is gonna this is to me too similar to to kind of what what emptied out Gary Indiana, what emptied out Cairo Illinois, what emptied out Detroit. Which is a sense of disarray um, that plays into the hand of kind of the, the you know the vast white middle class. Um, so Chris, I you think were talking about when we talked before the call started. You said that everything about COVID is sort of anti-urban and pro-suburb. Um, do you want to just follow that thought out? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say is I think this is a you know 
for those financial people on the line, being anti, being suggesting that big cities are going to fall apart has been kind of like being short bonds, you know, and it's always been the trade that people intellectually have gone to, but it's always been wrong. I think this is a case where I think we're, I mean, the one-two punch of pandemic and then the seemingly out of control city centers is going to cause there to be a flight to the suburbs again, a replay kind of of the 60s and 70s that so, you know, what changed New York City so in other cities was from the 70s, a lot from the 70s to the 2000s was the kind of aspirational professional class, you know, the young banker, the young the young partner at a law firm who um, who that couple, when they had their first kids, didn't move to the suburbs. They stayed in the city, and that dramatically changed the scope of these cities. You know, and I think one of the inconvenient truths about large northeastern cities is they're they're basically trickle down economic models. New York City is a it survives on banking, and if banking leaves or bankers leave, New York City changes fundamentally. No matter how leftist it is, it's still a it's still driven by banking, and I and I think. You know, anecdotally, I, I have a foot in both worlds. I spent eight years in urban, poor neighborhoods, and then I spent 20 years on Wall Street. And I can tell you from both both sides, it's not good. It's not good for cities. Okay, moving on uh, to back to real estate with Dean Adler. Um, Dean, we had uh, Vittorio Asaf, who uh, runs Serafina Restaurants speak at one of our first calls, and he, he mentioned the, the catastrophe that having to furlough or fire almost his entire staff. And he said that restaurants can't work or pay New York City rents if we have to sit every other table. The, the, the math doesn't work. And I wonder if we're heading for a new sort of framework where um, instead of, as you described it, uh, having a fixed income liability to the landlord, we have more of an equity relationship. You're kind of describing more broadly than just restaurants, but the entire retail model you said was broken. And I think what that means is that it's not obvious that having these large malls or having these large physical footprints makes sense. And it's just as much a risk as to the landlord as it is to the um, the person who rents the space. Does that mean that we have to renegotiate and rethink all contracts and they should be more equity and I'll call it based on what we actually sell versus uh, versus a, a fixed rent and yeah. just go bankrupt instead. So, number one, I actually think that's a secondary issue. Uh, occupancy costs represent seven to ten percent of the overall revenue for most retailers. So, even if the rents you know, appear higher, the fundamental issue is the other. 93% or 90% of the expenses and what the revenues are. So everyone likes to focus on the occupancy costs as the culprit or the opportunity. Um, so I think it's much more, uh, number one, the restaurants, if you can't bring the number of people in the restaurant, restaurants don't make money on their food. They make money, they make money on the bar, the turnover in the bar. They actually make a lot of money on the desserts. They don't really make a lot of money. And you start reducing the number of people who can go into a restaurant. And the issue is not whether the restaurant can make it. Do they even have the money to reopen? I'm involved with a restaurant chain on the West Coast. We have 18 restaurants. 
we were crushing it, doing $5 million a location, probably making 800000 on a million six investment, and rapidly growing. Terrific, terrific company. Our biggest issue now is can we afford to reopen our doors? It's going to cost us anywhere from 12 to $15 million to reinvest into the restaurant chain. And are we prepared to invest that kind of money and that type of risk to see whether the restaurants are going to work or not? Um, I do think, you know, to the extent a restaurant does get up and going, the landlord is going to have to do percentage rents and recut the deals to take a piece of the action. Um, the old days, they would kick out the restaurant and have a replacement retailer. So they would tell the restaurant, hey, keep in touch. You could leave. And there'll be three other retailers that take their space. There are not, there are, there are no three other retailers ready to take the space. Landlord's stuck. And they're not going to kick out one restaurant for a new one because every time a new restaurateur comes in, they want it their way. They redo the design. They redo the kitchens. It just costs a lot of money. And they usually go to the landlord for that money. And I don't believe landlords today, after spending $3 million giving it to the restaurant so they could open up in their buildings and the restaurant goes out of business, are they going to shell out another few, two to $3 million to try to attract a new restaurant? So I think there's a so pretty vicious cycle. The restaurant holder has a lot more power in this relationship than they think? Yeah, so, so, so let's assume they'll get the landlord to do percentage rent. That's really easy. And guess what? The, the restaurateur does have that power. They have the pricing power. And most landlords will give them a percentage rent-only deal, period. But the restaurateur has to deal with all the other expenses of running a successful business. So I do think the landlord will accede to the restaurant's demand. They will convert a normal rent to percentage rent. But I don't believe that cures all the issues. I think what cures the issues is we have to rebound as a society where people are going out again and going to spend as much money as they did before uh, making the restaurant business an important part of their social life. And I, and I don't see that for the next 18 months. Okay. Uh, Michael Bordeaux, you, um, you are a member of the Shadow FOMC. Uh, most people on the line don't know what that is. So um, would you spend a, a couple minutes talking about what the Shadow FOMC does? And I was thinking in that context, um, maybe it's time for a Shadow CDC and I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about what lessons you learned from your experience in 10 years being on the shadow of FMC and how it would be relevant to creating a potential shadow CDC in the process. Oh, sure, sure. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, the Shadow Open Market Committee uh, is a group of uh, eight uh, academics and uh, other, other people. We have one uh, business economist. And uh, what we do is we evaluate the Fed's policies. Okay, we we look at them and we we like to to sort of see what can we you know how can they be improved, uh, what's wrong with them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the way we operate today is we have conference twice a year in New York City, and we have the eight of us uh, give presentations on different aspects of. Federal Reserve policy. Then we have a speaker, usually a senior policymaker from the Fed, a president, like President Kaplan of, of Dallas, for example, we had last year. Okay, and we have this, this conference in New York City, a couple of hundred people come, 
uh, and the press comes. Okay. Originally, I'm an historian, but I always have to back things up. Originally, it was established in the 1970s by some leading critics of the Fed, Anna Schwartz, Carl Bruner, and Alan Meltzer. And at that time, they wanted to let the public know the Fed was making a huge mistake because its policies were highly inflationary. And it used to have these meetings twice a year where it would, you know, discuss what the Fed was doing. Then they'd have a press conference. It would get written up in the press. Okay, the, the, the shadow in the 70s and 80s was very important in letting the world know, the financial world and even beyond that, about the mistakes the Fed was make, making. Okay, I'm not saying the Fed, you know, changed its policies because of the shadow, but it did have a big impact. Today we're the next generation, and we um, we we don't do we don't operate quite the way they did back then in the 70s. Uh, we've become a bit more academic. We we publish these papers. Uh, we have a website, which the shadow didn't have back then. Um, and so, something like this is very good because it rides herd on a public institution. So so having doing doing something like this for the CDC. I think it's a terrific idea. The key thing is, though, is that people have to pay attention to you. Okay, so back in the 70s, the shadow had, an, you know, had a, had somebody from the Wall Street Journal who would come every week and, and write an article about it. Okay, today it's a little harder, so we have to work through websites. Okay, sometimes we get we get written up in the Wall Street Journal and other 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 organs. Sometimes we get involved in other ways of communication. But it seems to me this is a great idea. It's a very old idea. It came from from the UK. They have a shadow cabinet. Okay, that's if it's if the Tories are in, they have a Labour cabinet. And they have members of the cabinet who track every single minister and what he does. Mm-hmm. Hope that helps. Yeah, I think with that I'm going to wrap this up. Um, I want to just mention that. Um, in my worst nightmares, I'm always worried that somehow the web link won't work, and, and that happened today. Um, but we got through it. Um, so I want to thank all of my speakers who participated and listeners who went through the technical, the technical difficulties. I apologize, um, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. You can disconnect now. Bye-bye. Bye.